Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. And as I read, remember you are hearing God speak to you. Not that I am God, but I am reading His Word to you. I, I want to make sure that no one is confused about that, that's for sure. 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And then over in the 11th chapter where he's talking about the Lord's Supper, Paul writes, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And with that, we have read God's word. Give him the glory, and you may be seated. Let me remind you the summary of where we were two weeks ago, and that is... We introduced ourselves to the communion as a second sacrament. We saw the Lord's Supper in three dimensions. The past dimension, that is to be reminded of the cross of Christ in order that it would constantly be in front of our, our minds, our hearts, our very souls. A future dimension, that is, this is a perpetual meal that Christ has instituted and it goes, it says, it's, you eat of it until I return. And then it is also a present reality. That is, we are called to embrace with believing hearts the sufferings and the benefits of Christ now, today, as well as to recognize the unity that we have with Christ and the unity with one another. This is more than just a meal with Jesus and me. We come to a table that is set for all who believe. And this is what unites us together, this table. And we are to be reminded in as many ways as we possibly can that we do this as a body, not just as individuals. I, I point that out because it flies in the face of the individualism of our culture and of evangelicalism. That is basically me and Jesus and a, maybe a few others that I want to ask into my group. Now, this is true for everyone who is a believer in Christ. Whether I am fond of them or not, whether they know me or not, whether or not we have great relationships or not, this is all of us coming together. And we have to see it exactly that way. And I also remind you that a sacrament, and especially the Lord's Supper, is both a sign and a seal. It's a sign that points to something else, not to itself. 
it points you in the way to go. And it's a seal as it takes what is the sign to which the sign points and applies it to your life. You may remember when I began this whole thing about sacraments, two words I use, mystery and seed. It's a mystery because we don't know exactly how it operates, but it does. Part of it is we're going to see the mystery is the Holy Spirit operates in some way whenever you take that bread and drink the cup. The seed is he plants something within you when you take the cup and you eat the bread. Just as in baptism, whether it's credo-baptism or pedo-baptism, baptism by statement of faith or baptism by a child of a member of a covenant family, the mystery is how does God, how does the Spirit work in that? And, you know, we don't always see it. But we do know that a seed is planted, especially within a child who is one of the elect, that one day will take hold and one day will bear its fruit. And therefore, it is important the children of the covenant family be baptized because that's part of the process by which they will come to know Christ. You can't get a crop unless you put a seed in. I've tried it. It doesn't work. But you have to have the seed in order to get the crop. So does that mean God can't work around it? No, but it sure does help when you have the seed planted. God can use it. Okay. For instance, um, we planted a garden once and uh, the next year we didn't, but still the plants came up. Why? Because there were seeds that were left in the ground and they did their work. God can do things like that. So let's take a look at Christ's presence in the supper. Uh, what I want you to do before we take a look at what we, with what we disagree, what we do agree with, and one, that Christ instituted this meal. Any branch of Christendom has to say Christ instituted it because it's in three Gospels, and I read the words of Paul that repeat it. The supper proclaims the death of Christ until he comes. Again, that's a very clear words of Jesus, not only at the supper, but also by Paul, that the meal has an ongoing significance in the life of the church. If it didn't, it would have been jettisoned a long time ago. But for 2,000 some years, the church has been observing and celebrating this sacrament because it says it's something that's important. And the mystery is how the substance of the meal provides a crucified body and the blood of Christ, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, there have been agreements among the, the movements. Lutheran and Reformed both agree that the supper is a gift of, from God to us. The Reformed and the Anabaptists and some of the Reformers said, no, the supper is a gift of ours to God. In fact, as one Catholic theologian said, and I, as I read the last couple of weeks, 
He says, God never sacrifices for man. Man has to sacrifice for God. And so they at least agree, and that's, that's the basis they have, that this is a gift from uh, man to God. Now, I sat there and read that and said, gee, the cross was God, man, sacrificing himself on our behalf. Where did I miss that? <laughs> God does sacrifice on behalf of man. But they go back to the Old Testament, especially Leviticus, and that's where they discover that. So we're going to deal with the presence of Christ. And remember, especially as we look at the Heidelberg Catechism, this is a tumultuous time. The Reformation was vicious. I mean, people were standing up for what they believed was their faith, what was truth. And if you've ever dealt with anybody who has a truth claim, to talk to them in a, in a way that's different from them, after a while it can become great, greatly uh, adversarial. We stand for what we, we believe, and that becomes tumultuous. It happened in the Reformation. It happens today. I mean, there are some between denominations. There's still some fighting that takes place over it. I, I hope that what I talk about today is honest toward what it is. I think it is. And that you will listen to the reasons why I come to the conclusions to which I come. Uh, I've experienced this in my own way. I was part of what was called a Curcio movement. It's now called the Fourth Day Movement. I was the only Presbyterian pastors. They were all Lutherans. And they had to get a special dispensation for me to be able to serve communion, even though I was verified, ordained, and had, and we were in contact with one another. Because I wasn't Lutheran, therefore I didn't believe the way they did about it. Uh, I, I've also been in Catholic churches. I did a wedding once where the priest was very, very generous. He allowed me to get up on the altar in the area, which I should not, I should never have been allowed to, but he was open to it. And otherwise, I'd never gotten close to it. Also remember, I went on vacation once up to our favorite place, and we decided to go to a Lutheran church, and they were having communion. The pastor came over to me and my family, my family and I, family and me, and says before the service, we're going to have communion, but you're not allowed to because you're not a member of the Lutheran church and you're not a member of this congregation. And I'm going, this is supposed to bring us together? <laughs> Come on, sir. But that was their, their idea about communion. So let's take a look at the, how we discover the personal presence of Christ in the meal. And again, the catechism puts it this way. Do then the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? And the answer, no. But as the water in baptism has not changed into the blood of Christ, nor becomes the washing away of sins itself, being only the divine token and assurance thereof, so also in the Lord's Supper, the sacred bread does not become the body of Christ itself, though agreeably agreeable to its nature and usage of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ. 
See, the key issue, and it's the key issue in all of these understandings of the presence of Christ, is this tiny little word. Is. As one of our presidents once said, it all depends about what is, is. And he was trying to get out of a horrible situation by uh, dealing with it. But there it is. Is. Is it equivalent? Like a math, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's equivalency. Or is it representation? That's what we're dealing with. How you understand that tiny little word. Two letters. And it has caused great issues. So there are three different ways, basically, that people have looked at this in denominations. There is the real physical presence. There is a spiritual presence. And then thirdly, there is a real spiritual presence. And that's what we're going to go through in the uh, time we have left. One. The real presence, sometimes we call it the Eucharist. And there are two traditions that look at it this way. One is the Roman Catholic tradition, and it's underneath that word, transubstantiation. Ah, this is one of those arguments that go back, way back in theology with uh, Aquinas, who's the chief theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, who loved to use Greek of Greek terms and a Greek way of thinking. So he said, well, you have in the sacrament substance and accident. Substance is what it is, the main stuff. Accidents are the things that are peripheral to that. For instance, if you have an elephant, picture an elephant. Picture a pink elephant. You have the substance of an elephant. But you can take away the pinkness. You can take away its trunk. It's still an elephant. You can take away parts of it, and it still will be an elephant because it it fits the definition of an elephant. And so he said that in communion, the bread and the wine change its substance from bread and wine into body and blood. So it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, it smells like bread, it crumples like bread, but it's not bread. Now, some may say oh, that's a little sophisticated, yes, sophisticated arguing. It's it's kind of sophomoric, but that's the the lineage of the the understanding that they had, and that the elements of body and bread are underneath the elements of bread and wine. But they're there, and it changes. So when the priest holds up the elements, and he says, hoch es corpus meum, the bread turns into the body of Christ. When he does the same thing for the wine, the wine turns into the blood of Christ. And it really is built upon this literalistic view of his that it is equivalent This is my body. This is my blood. 
And also, because of that, when the priest lifts up the elements and he prays and he rings a bell, that's when they change. And there is a real re-crucifixion of Christ that takes place. It's not a bloody sacrifice as a cross, but Christ is re-crucified again every time they do it. And, you know, in the Catholic Church, every day they celebrate the Mass and they celebrate the, uh, the sacrament. And so every day in Toledo and in Syria and in England and in Dayton, they are re-crucifying Christ. A bloody sacrifice, yes, but a re-crucifixion. Re uh, See, therefore, the the focus of the of the meal is upon the actions, and it is a gift of God, a gift to the people of God, to God. And so they are more concerned who does it and how it's done than what happens with it. For instance, only a priest can consecrate the elements. Uh, I had a friend who's Episcopalian, and they sometimes can go this way. And he, when he went on vacation, he had to consecrate enough of the elements for the two Sundays he was gone. Because that's the only way they could do it. Since they did it every Sunday. But it's... Uh, it's that re-crucifixion of Christ. And it's, it's very similar in Eastern Orthodoxy. They have somewhat the same way, except they add a little bit of different element, element, and this is part of their theology, is that the Holy Spirit deifies human beings. In his work with human beings, he makes them more and more like God or more and more God. That's a, It's one of those aspects. And so when they come to the communion and they offer the sacrifice, they are basically saying you are taking more and more God within you and as you eat and as you drink and as it nourishes your body, God is growing within you. Uh, we, we might find that a little strange basically because we weren't raised that way. But that's, that's the way they are. That's the real presence, number one. The other one is the Lutheran. And they deal with the word called consubstantiation. If transubstantiation is that the elements turn into the actual body and blood, and therefore only the priest can handle, and for a long time the best you could ever have was a piece of uh, wafer, because you weren't, you weren't good enough to have the blood of Christ. In Lutheranism, with consubstantiation, it means the elements are with the body, the, the bread, and the wine. Luther wanted to get away from Catholicism, but he did not want to leave altogether. He didn't appreciate and like the transubstantiation, but he could not get away from this idea that is is equivalent, an equivalent term. And so this literalistic interpretation. In fact, when he writes about it, he says the, the meaning of the words, this is my body, this is my blood, is this accompanies 
my body. This accompanies my blood, or my blood accompanies these elements. And so the body and blood are in, under, or through the elements. You pick it up, and it sure looks like bread, it smells like bread, it tastes like bread, but mixed in there somehow, in all those molecules, is the body and blood of Christ. Therefore, it doesn't turn into, but it's there. So Christ is present. And they treat the elements with great respect, as, as do the Roman Catholic, because this is the body. In fact, you may notice as you go into a Catholic church that the believers, the Catholic believers, will genuflect when they come into the sanctuary. And sometimes if they, they have a baptismal font, it's open with water, and they'll put the sign of the cross on their forehead, kind of a rebaptism. But they genuflect. And most people look at that and say, well, there's a crucifix up there on the cross, up on the wall, right? It's a cross with a figure of Christ, and they're genuflecting before that. No. If you look at the, what they call the altar, we call the table. Don't you dare ever call this the altar in front of me. We don't sacrifice anything like that. If you look at the altar up on the front area, you'll see this little box they call the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle is host from a previous communion, bread and wine. And since they believe it is the actual body and blood of Christ, they bow to it. They worship it. Because it is Christ in their midst. Lutherans don't quite go that far because of their view of, of uh, consubstantiation. But you see, the, the crucial issue that is behind this that makes us, especially as reformers, reformed theologians, think about this, is the idea of the nature of Christ. One person, two natures. And here we go all the way back to the uh, Council of Chalcedonian at 451 A.D., where because of the turmoil over how we understood the person of Christ, they came out and finalized the basic Christian understanding. Yes, he is truly God and truly man. Vera Homa and Vera Deo. And there is two natures, one person. But those two natures are, and they put this in negative terms, it's not mixed. It's not confused, it's not separated, it's not divided. Not divided, they are together. It's not separated, that is, they work in their own realm. They're not confused. You can see the humanity of Christ and you can also see the divi divinity of Christ. But the divinity of Christ never becomes his humanity and his humanity never becomes his divinity. They are not mixed. They just don't come together where you wonder, well, which is which? So they asked Jesus, when, he, when, is, when are you going to come back? And he says, nobody knows. The son doesn't know. Only the father knows. Well, what's that say about his divinity? What do you mean? You're God. You know everything. Don't you know the time? Well, he's speaking out of his humanity. And his divinity had not told his humanity when that was going to take place. And therefore, 
He answered the best he could. I have no idea. Only my father knows. Okay, that's part of the, the issue. Well, every, every branch of Christianity, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, have all agreed to the Chalcedonian formula until you get to the meal. And this is what happens. When the meal comes, those who believe in transubstantiation and consubstantiation basically say, well, the ubiquity of God, his all presence, is transferred to the human Christ who is up in heaven. And therefore, the human Christ can be everywhere at the same time. And you see how they have mixed the two together? Therefore, when you have mass throughout the world at the same day, at the same time, or throughout the day, Christ can be just as present physically in Tokyo, as in Syria, as in London, as in Dayton. The ubiquitiness of the humanity. And some take a look at that and say, hold it. The scripture talks about we have a person, a man who is in heaven just like us, who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Uh, in all due respect, sir, we do not have ubiquity. I cannot be at my bed right now sleeping at the same time in which I'm here talking. Although sometimes I wish I could do that. I don't have, humanity does not have that. We are set in time and space. Uh, sometimes the space is bigger than at other times, but we are set here. And Christ, if he's going to be truly God, truly man, cannot be everywhere physically at the same time. It's one of the reasons why the reformers deeply disagreed with either Roman Catholic or Lutheran understanding. Then you have the spiritual presence. Now, that's a memorial. Uh, partly originated from one of the reformers, a student of John Calvin, Z Zwingli. Although he changed his mind while he was growing in his faith, and, and he went back and forth about this. But basically what he said is that nothing happens with the elements at all. In fact, nothing happens in the sacrament. The sacrament is a memory, a memorial to the crucifixion of Christ. And it is like, it's like an anniversary. On your anniversary, you remember, these two don't know because it's only two weeks. On, on an anniversary, you begin to remember that day. And you remember what the, led up to it. Not only how you met, but how you fell in love and how somebody proposed to another and how you got prepared. And then you take out on your anniversary your picture book and you look at the pictures and say, yeah, yeah. Oh, Uncle Charlie was there. Oh, man, I, I missed that one. But oh, Aunt Mabel, she's fun. And you go through and you pick up all of these memories. And then you remember how you have grown together over the years. And that's what anniversaries are meant for. It's a memorial. Not that you're died, but 
you are thinking about that tremendous day. Uh, that's why you have a ring on your finger. A ring that reminds you of the covenant, the promises you have made to one another and before God and before witnesses. And therefore, it's a reminder, don't get in trouble. Really stay out of trouble because you've made that covenant and you don't want to break it. Well, that's to, to uh, followers of Swingley who are Anabaptists and I would dare say basic evangelicalism. The meal is simply a meal. It helps us to remember Christ. And in remembering Christ, we repledge ourselves to him for the sacrifice that he has made to us. Uh, that's part of the reason why I think the uh, Anabaptists of today and evangelicalism call it a rite and an ordinance. They will not, they, not, they will not but they, they do sometimes use the word sacrament because sacrament has a very specific meaning. It's a rite that we do. It's an ordinance. And we may do it four times a year, maybe once a month. We don't want to wear it out as if doing it too often is like looking at your wedding pictures too often. That might somehow wear out the whole idea of your marriage. And so they simply look at it as a corporate act of remembering and maybe, maybe an opportunity for the Spirit in your remembering to prick your conscience and to, de to deal with you and what goes on. Uh, but Christ is not present. And the Spirit does not need to apply anything that Christ has done to you. He, you may simply have a wonderful experience of thinking about yourself and Christ. And this gets down to representation. This is how they look at it. It is a representation of my life. And in that, it is me giving a gift to God, not God giving a gift to me. And you see the difference? It's an offering like that. It centers upon the person and his or her faith rather than centering in upon Christ because it centers upon who me, who I am, what I've done, what I failed to do, and what I need to change in order to be a better Christian. Uh, you notice even how I say that, does that just kind of cause issues? How what I have to do to, for I to become a better Christian. Where's the Holy Spirit in that? Oh, he's hovering somewhere over in the chaos here, but he doesn't necessarily have to do the work. So I've, I've shown you, and I've, you probably have already figured out my proclivity and how you view the sacrament, because we're coming to the third, final, and I think the best. Especially if we're going to call ourselves Reformed. And that is the real, real spiritual presence. If there is a real physical presence of you and there is a spiritual presence, this one, in a sense, encapsulates both of them together. It's a real spiritual presence. That is, as the Catechism 
says. When in question 79, why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the New Testament in his blood and St. Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? The answer is Christ speaks thus not without great cause, namely not only to teach us thereby that as bread and wine sustain the temporal life, so also his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink of our souls unto eternal life. But much more by this visible sign and pledge to assure us that we are really partakers of his true body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit as we receive by the mouth of the body these holy tokens in remembrance of him and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly our own as if we had suffered and done all in our own person. The meal is a reminder to us that Christ sustains us and he alone. We don't even sustain ourselves. Uh, the image of being a child, of being a baby, an infant, that is absolutely dependent upon his mother and father to have his diapers changed, to be fed, to be clothed, to be carried, to be, keeping, to be kept warm on a very cold day, to provide a house and everything it is. That is the image of us in Christ. Christ provides it all. We simply are recipients of what Christ has done for us. And as we receive the elements, we receive the benefits. And this leads to an assurance of our faith. When you take the bread and you put it in your mouth, you're acting it out, but it's as if at that moment in the mystery, the seed of all that Christ is is being planted in you. So when you take the cup, whether you take grape juice or wine, and you drink it, there's a mystery of the Holy Spirit working, but there is a seed of all that Christ has given to you and done for you implanted within your soul. But Christ is not present in the elements. He is present by the go-between. Up here you have Christ. Down here you have you or us. We could put a whole bunch of these together. The one thing that connects us is the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is in Christ and the Spirit is in us. And so he can take all that Christ has done and apply it to us. And he can take all of our sins and all of our, our, our needs and bring them up to Christ to be forgiven and dealt with. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that brings Christ down to us spiritually. Because he's a great go-between. Therefore, the elements don't change. They are just bread and wine or, or juice. Afterwards, you can take the bread and throw it out on the ground and the birds can eat it and that's not sacrilegious. 
You can take the wine and have yourself a party during a fellowship time. And that's not sacrilegious. It is simply bread and wine. What we ask the Lord to do is separate them from a common use to the sacred use of being the means by which the Spirit who is in Christ and who is in us transfers the benefits of Christ to us. He nourishes us and he feeds us just as you did when you ate the bread and drank the cup. And that's the key ingredient. The key ingredient for his real physical presence is the ubiquitiness of the human nature of Christ. Or the key ingredient of spiritual presence is your faith. The key ingredient under the real spiritual presence is the work of the Holy Spirit, which you do not see. You know, your eyes don't see it, but it's taking place. It happens. And you may not experience the seed, but it's planted and it begins to grow and it begins to do its work. It may take a while before this seed, which is part of the benefits of Christ, are seen in your life. But all of a sudden, or over a period of time, you begin to realize, hey, I'm not as angry as I used to be. I can be patient, even with that so-and-so down the street who doesn't like me. You begin to see the fruit of the Spirit operating more and more. That's one of the reasons why, in Reformed circles, truly Reformed circles, we like to have communion every Sunday. I don't know about you. I need all the seed I can get to help me grow. I need to be nourished and strengthened, and I need it to be activated. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. I've known sometimes when Christians have come to the table, and they took the bread, and they took the cup, and all of a sudden, a healing took place within them. And this is, again... Healings are always a mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Mystery and the seed boom, took place right instant. Sometimes the healing has been prolonged for a, a period of time until the seed had time to grow, until something in the person changed in order for them to be experience that healing. That's the element. It's a reminder to us of Ephesians 2.6 where Paul says we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Right now, you are here physically. Right now, by the work of the Holy Spirit, you are in the heavenly realm with Christ. You are in Christ. Colossians, Paul says that we are seated in heavenly places. Therefore, seek that which is above. Because that's where you really live. I know you live here. You pay bills and you do things here. But when you look at it, you really live in heaven. And you're just getting prepared to be there for all times. To be in the presence of God. It's also why reformers have always tied in with communion the whole idea, of, uh, which is a key New Testament idea, in Christ or united with Christ.
that your life is like this pen. When it's by itself, everyone can see it. But you put it in this Bible, and it disappears into the Bible. Your life before you came to Christ was your own in, in one sense. But when you came to Christ, you were hidden in Him, and that's where you dwell. And you are hidden more in Christ than you are anywhere else. You are united with Him. That union cannot be broken. Well, what if I do something horrible? It cannot be broken. Why? Because it is based on the steadfast love of God and His faithfulness. Not on your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Because quite honestly, if you look at it, you don't have a whole lot of steadfast love and faithfulness. It doesn't take too much to get you off center. But you are being held by the hand of God which, from which you cannot escape. And you are united with Christ. That's how you view who you are. And that's what this, the uh, supper is like. You know, the supper is like a dove who comes to feed its young. Finds the food, goes back to the nest, pushes it down the gullet, and the little dove, dovelink, I don't know if that's a word, but it's dovelink, is fed. That's what Christ does. That's what the supper does. It is the Holy Spirit feeding you like a dove to its little little uh, dovelinks, chicks, whatever. Why is this important and why do we focus on this? Well, one is because according to whatever view you look at is the way in which you see yourself in Christ and the, and the way you see Christ himself. If the real physical presence is true, then the ubiquity of Christ is true. And Christ is no longer just human. He is a mixture of divine and divinity and humanity, which we've always said is not, cannot be possible. Then he doesn't represent us fully the way he ought to. If it's simply a memorial, then there's nothing that happens. But if it's a real spiritual presence, a lot of things happen, things that we don't know. And the other side of this is in the, the question 80. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? And remember, this is written in turbulent times. The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have full forgiveness of all our sins by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once, once accomplished on the cross and that by the Holy Spirit we are engrafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father and is there to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead have not forgiveness of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is still daily offered for them by the priest. And that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and is therefore to be worshipped in them. And thus the Mass at bottom is nothing else but a denial of the one sacrifice and passion of Jesus Christ.
get this last phrase, and an accursed idolatry. And if that's true, which I think it is, then why would you ever want to participate in the Mass? You're basically saying, Christ, you haven't forgiven me. You haven't done enough. I have to do some. And anytime you genuflect, you have bowed to an idol. Can't see it. It's not wood and stone, but it's an idol. That's why this is important. That's why it's crucial. And that's why you have to decide, how am I going to take a look at this? How am I going to deal with this? And on which side I am I going to come? Well, to quote a very famous person I once read, as for me and my house, we will obey the Lord. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm solidly reformed and reforming, because I need it. <laughs> so, there it is. Presence of Christ. You get to decide. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you grant to us not only a variety of ways to look at what you have done for us, but you grant to us the Holy Spirit. And I remember the words of Paul that said, if you disagree with this in any way, let the Holy Spirit guide you and understand it. And I pray that you too, one day, will come to the truth. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would remember what this meal is as we understand it. The, the tie of the Holy Spirit between you and us where you nourish and feed us and assure us of our forgiveness of sins and our union with you and that life is the life that you have lived being placed within us. And that, Father, we would look with diligence upon our own soul and come rejoicing in the mystery and the seed that is planted when we come to the meal. Therefore, O oh Lord, Guard our hearts and minds. Help us to reflect and to think correctly. Help us, O oh Lord, to honor and glorify you and you alone as we come to the meal. For we ask it in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.